Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. I'm going to read that passage as we get into the message today. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no sacrifice, nor no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and a fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' commandment or Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that has said, Vengeance is mine, for vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, last week, we looked at this passage and went over it, and I wanted to spend one more week on it. There's plenty of material here, and we won't exhaust it all. But willful sin, last week we talked about this. What does it mean to be willfully sinning? If we sin willfully, last week we, you know, we looked at this and, well, who doesn't willfully sin? And this kind of sin, there's, there's no more sacrifice? Well, what does it mean? Can you lose your salvation? Can you commit some type of a sin that, for which you cannot be forgiven? And as we looked at it, the sin that is being spoken of here is the sin of apostasy or the sin of forsaking the faith, forsaking the truth. And I I want to preface this. This was really not in my introduction, but I want to preface this, this whole passage as we look at it by saying this. A person who is a true believer, a true child of God, will not and cannot ultimately and finally apostatize. Last week, we talked about two different characters in the New Testament, in particular, two disciples of Jesus, one who temporarily apostatized, and that was Peter. He denied the Lord three times. But he came back to a point of repentance and followed the Lord. God greatly used him. On the other hand, we see Judas. And Judas apostatized, and Judas is in hell. Because Judas was not a true believer. Though he was there with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, as one of the 12 disciples. Now, you may be asking, when you look at this, well, why are you telling us this? If this scripture is written and it's a stern warning, but it doesn't apply to us, then why are we preaching on it? Or does it apply? Well, how does it apply if we are believers and this can't happen to us? Because we believe that the scripture does teach eternal security. We will not turn away from the faith. Um, some people use that, the phrase, the perseverance of the saints. They will persevere to the end. Or 
from another perspective called the preservation of God. God preserves us. And the faith that he gives is a faith that does persevere to the end. But as you notice throughout this book, what have we been encouraged to do? Hold fast the confidence. Stand fast. Don't let go. Let me remind you that the writer of Hebrews is writing a vast group of people, some of whom are true believers, some of whom are maybe sitting on the fence, thinking about it, hearing the preaching, maybe attending services, but having never commit themselves to the truth. And so he's giving a great warning. And the warning certainly is applicable to all of us. And as people who are truly saved, if you are truly a child of God, this is something that we need to think about. The Bible does tell us to be sure that we are in the faith. Examine yourselves, the Bible says. Make sure that you're in the faith. But I do want to say that those who truly are children of God will not and cannot ultimately abandon the faith. Because when God saves us, who keeps us saved? Is it we who keep ourselves saved or is it God who keeps us saved? It is obviously God who keeps us saved. If our salvation was in any way dependent upon us, we would fail. We don't save ourselves. It is God who saves us. And now, having said that, I want us to look at this passage. Because he says here in verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. What does it mean to have received the knowledge of the truth? You say, well, I'm a believer. I have received the knowledge of the truth. Absolutely. But there's really three aspects to receiving the knowledge of the truth. The first is this. You have to know the truth. You have to have heard it. A person who has never heard the gospel cannot apostatize from the gospel. They can't walk away from it because they're ignorant of it. They don't know it. I'm not saying they don't go to hell when they die. God has talked about that and their inexcusability there in the beginning of Romans. Okay? But this sin of apostasy, of forsaking, deliberately forsaking the faith, that's what we're talking about here. So for a person to have received the knowledge of the truth, obviously you had to have heard it and understood. A person who has never heard cannot apostatize, cannot sin this way. But there's another aspect to this. There's an aspect of not just hearing the truth and understanding it, but it is to assent to the truth, to receive the knowledge of the truth, to understand that it is true. You say, well, just a minute. Isn't the person who understands the truth saved? Not necessarily. Now, yes, if you are saved, you have heard the truth and you have given assent to it that it is true. 
But did you know that you can give assent to the truth and still be lost and still be damned? James 2.19. The devils know the truth. They've heard it. And they give assent to it. The devils believe and tremble. Of course, they cannot be saved. But you say, well, that's the devils. Well, let me give you an illustration or let me give an example from Scripture about the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they heard the truth. And what did they do when they heard the truth? They understood it. And in fact, the scripture tells us that they knew it was true. That's step two. To assent to it that it is true. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes by night, sneaks out of his home, under cover of darkness, and comes to meet with Jesus, to talk to him. In John chapter 3, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, and listen to these damning words. He says, Rabbi, or teacher, we know. Now he says we, he's talking about the Pharisees. We as the leaders of Israel. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles except God be with him. So what did, what did Nicodemus just confess? We realize that you are from God. Because there is no way that any man could do the things that you are doing, these miracles, if God was not with him. Well... And then we go on and, and we go on to the story, and I really do believe that Nicodemus was a believer. But what about the rest of them? And you see that discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus as Jesus is explaining to him the gospel about being born again. And how Nicodemus he what? Jesus explains it to him. But here they were, Pharisees. They'd heard the truth. They understood it. They, I mean, they went out and listened to Jesus teach. And then they went back to talk about it. How can we trip him up next time? What kind of questions can we ask him? To, we we got to stop him. You know, Pilate even said that the, the Jews had delivered Jesus, and he knew they had delivered him for jealousy, for envy. And the Sadducees and the ruling priests they didn't like Jesus because Jesus had quite a following among the poor people. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were really political. They were political groups, so they were religious. They were religious political groups. And the Pharisees, they gathered their support from the, the wealthy, the upper, the upper class. The Sadducees, on the other hand, gathered their support from the lower class, from the poor people. And who followed Jesus gladly? It was the poor those who were the outcasts of society, and the Sadducees were very upset about that. They did not like the fact that Jesus was gaining popularity. Of course, we could talk about that, but I won't uh, digress too much there. But here they were. They knew the truth. They had a knowledge of the truth. But as Paul says in Romans, what did they do with the truth? They suppressed it. 
In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Jesus became very angry with the Pharisees. Why? Because they were trying to turn away people from hearing the truth. It was one thing for them to just reject it, but for them to try to get other people to reject it. That's when you see Jesus really come after them. And so here, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26, if we sin willfully... After that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. There's a third aspect of having received the knowledge of the truth. First is to know the truth. Second is to assent that it is true. But then finally, and this is what true salvation is all about, to entrust yourself to that truth, to commit yourself to the truth, to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. It's not enough to have heard the gospel. It's not enough to agree, oh yeah, I, I believe that there was a person who was named Jesus, and yes, historically, yes, he, he was crucified and died. But for you to accept that and to call upon Him for salvation, that is where you are a true believer. And so to receive the knowledge of the truth, a person could receive it by just Hearing it, first could receive it by, well, assenting that it is true. But now he's talking to those people, and this is what we're dealing with here, people who have not, who have not entrusted themselves in faith, in saving faith to Jesus Christ. And so he warns them, and especially this would have, um, this would have been very um, important for the Jews to hear. Because there were some Jews who were thinking, you know, maybe this Christianity, maybe, they, maybe they'd been meeting with the other the people who were true believers and they were listening to the gospel being preached. And yeah, I like that. I like the way that sounds. But, you know, I, with the persecution and with these other things, I'm not sure I really want to commit. Maybe it would just be better for me to go back to what I've always known. The sacrificial system, the temple here in Jerusalem. It would just be easier if I would just stay with what I know. And the warning there was, well, if you do that, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. The sacrificial system is over. And he has been teaching us through the book of Hebrews that Jesus is what? He is the final sacrifice. When he died, it was once for all. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. If you go back into Judaism, if you go back into the Old Testament system of sacrificial worship, it's not doing you a bit of good. There are no more sacrifices. Jesus is the final sacrifice for sins. And if you reject him, there is no other sacrifice for sin. So here's this great warning. Who is vulnerable? What kind of people are vulnerable to the sin of apostasy, the sin of rejecting and walking away, deliberately walking away from the truth? Well, I think there's a passage in Scripture that can really help us with that. Keep your finger there in Hebrews 
chapter 10, but I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. And I think as you see this passage, it's going to help clear things up for you. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives this parable to his disciples. You've heard the parable, you know it. It's the parable of the soils. In Matthew 13, beginning at verse 3, he spake many things unto them, the multitudes, in parables, saying, and he gives this parable, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air, or the fowls, came and devoured them up. Some fell on stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear? Let him hear. There. That solves the problem. You all understand now, right? I guess it looks like the disciples. <laughs> and his disciples said, uh, they came unto him ever since and said, Why do you speak unto them in parables? He said, why, why, why do you keep using these stories that are like mystical and uh, uh, they're interesting, but I don't get it. And they didn't understand. What did Jesus mean? What, sowing seed? Yeah, well, we understand that. We all... We have all planted gardens. You throw seed out there, and you know, some of it misses the plot, lands over here on the garden path, and you know, birds out there, oh, yeah, they're out there to grab up that seed. And yep, sometimes there's weeds, sometimes you plow, but there's hard ground right underneath, and it doesn't grow. But then some find, finds the good soil, and man, that's what you want. Well, yeah, we get it. That's nice. And what's plowing got to do with it? Well, he explains it. Go down to verse 18. He tells him why he's speaking in parables. But he goes, hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. They've already heard it with their ears. What does he, by, what does he mean by hear? Is he just going to tell it to him again? No, he says, understand. Aha. So here's the explanation. Verse 19. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, or here's the gospel, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon or forthwith, with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he no root in himself, but dureth for a while. But when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. But he that receiveth seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. That parable is also given in Mark chapter 4, and it's also given in Luke chapter 8. So in three of the Gospels, this parable is given. In Mark chapter 4, it's interesting that he, in verse 19, when he's talking about that, the thorny ground, he says, and the cares of this world, 
and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. In Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8 and verse 14, speaking of those which fell among the thorns, are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and the pleasures of this life. Three things. Now, what type of people is the writer of Hebrews speaking to when he is giving this warning? Those who, having received the knowledge of the truth, willfully sin or apostatize. Well, there are several types of people who are vulnerable. Look at just a few of those. First of all, I think of children who grow up in Christian homes. And they've heard it from birth, maybe even before birth. But they have heard it all their lives. These would be your children, my children. They're growing up in Christian homes. And what a blessing. What a privilege. But, yea, what a responsibility. Because here are these children hearing, and they just assume because they know the facts about Jesus, and they know the Bible, they know the catechisms, they know the stories, it's just they've always heard it. And, yeah, it's true. And they have those two first aspects of receiving the truth. They've heard it over and over. Yes, believe it, it's true. But they've never made it their own. And what happens? They assume that because they have a knowledge of the truth, they are safe. But then when they go out on their own and experience the world, what happens? Whoa, they're gone. You know, we've seen this in this assembly. We've seen this at Castle Rock Baptist Church. Where kids who've grown up in Christian homes, they get out on their own and they abandon church. They don't even go to church. They think, what? What happened? I listen to one guy talk about the Southern Baptist Convention, and they, and they do research because there's a lot of, a lot of Southern Baptists, and they have these statistics on you know, the percentage of children who grew up in Christian homes who don't stay in the church, who just leave and abandon the faith. Why is that? So here, types of people who are vulnerable. Just because you have a knowledge of the truth doesn't mean you're safe. There has to be a com- personal commitment to the truth. There has to be a, a turning to Christ and entrusting yourself to Him. Another type of, another group of people who are vulnerable to this type of sin of apostasy. People who are continually defeated by sin. People who really, they, they attend church, they like to be around believers, and they attempt to live the Christian life in the strength of the flesh. They try to outwardly conform. These are the people that are always looking for the next book of how to be a Christian 
or what's the formula for X, Y, Z? How do I just, you know, show me the, show me the things that I need to do to be thus. And what are they trying to do? They're trying and attempting to conform to Christianity outwardly. They're trying to look like what they see. I like what I see. I want to be like that. Ah, oh, you dress this way. Okay, I'll dress this way. Oh, you listen to this kind of music. Okay, I'll listen to this kind of music. And they try to do all these things externally, and they're trying to live this Christian life, so-called, in the strength of the flesh. And what happens? They're always looking for the next high. It's, it's very emotional. And we, we see this in a lot of churches called Christian churches. What do they got up there? You go to this church, and man, there's this praise band hyping the congregation up. You've got all this music that, and trying to emotionally stir up people to get them excited. And what happens? It's kind of people fall away. Eventually abandon the faith. And the fact is, because they never had it. They had an outward profession. They tried to look the part. And folks, we've seen this. We've seen this. You're always looking for the next solution and the formula that will somehow be the magic bullet for successful Christian living. And then there's those who as I mentioned here, who endure great sufferings and there's a temptation to throw off their confidence. And as he says here at the end of chapter 10, verse 35, cast not therefore away your confidence which hath great recompense of reward. Verse 38, he says, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Don't shrink back. Even in the face of persecution, the fact is the faith that comes from the Holy Ghost will burn before it turns back. Look at martyrs who have stood for the faith and gone to their deaths because they could not and would not recant. And then, of course... Those who uh, really endure great sufferings are like the seed that's sown there on that rocky soil where there's a little bit of earth and it springs up and, oh, they with joy receive it. And, yeah, this is true. But then when the sun comes up, all of a sudden there's pressure, there's persecution, and they have no strength in themselves. You can't live the Christian life in the flesh. And what happens? They wither and die. They're not true believers. And then, finally, the person who becomes choked by the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the pleasures of this world. And how distracting those things are. The cares of this life. Are there cares in this life? Certainly there are a lot of cares. Think of all the things you've got to do this week. No, don't really, please. 
<laughs> you won't be paying attention. But you know, when you think about it, you got to go to work. Why? Well, because you got to make some money because you got utility bills. You got this or that payment. You got the house to keep up. You got that leaky faucet you got to fix. You've got time. You got to, you know, and you start going down through the list of the cares of this life. And you know what? They are many. But what about the deceitfulness of riches? You said, Pastor, you see my bank account. I, I have not fallen prey to the deceitfulness of riches because I ain't got any. Well, you don't have to have riches to be deceived by riches. There are a lot of people who just think, hey, if I just had a little more. Wasn't that what Rockefeller said? What would it take to satisfy you? Just a little bit more. <laughs> Listen, if you're not satisfied now, you won't be satisfied when you make more money. The Bible says hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. And that is true across the board. The lusts of the flesh, and that's what he's talking about when the, I talk about the eyes of man. The eyes of man are never satisfied. Why do you think the porn industry thrives? Because the eyes of man are never satisfied. Why do you think people are pursuing the almighty dollar, as they call it? To get more stuff, because they're not satisfied with what they've got. They need the latest and the greatest They've got to keep up with the Joneses, keep up with their neighbors, keep up with their friends. And they're not satisfied. That's the deceitfulness. The deceitfulness of riches is that riches will satisfy. Impossible. Will not happen. Riches do not satisfy. And then it's the pleasures of this world. You think about the pleasures that this world has to offer. The entertainment, the the diversions, the amusement. And what do people do? They turn to that to try to to dull the voice of conscience, to try to put aside, to put out of their minds the things that are more important. The pleasures of this world. Remember Pilgrim's Progress? This Pilgrim and Faithful, they walk into what? Vanity Fair. Whoa. Distractions galore. All the glitter of the world. And it's distracting. Believe me, kids, when you leave home, if you're not, if your faith isn't in Jesus Christ, the world wants to rip out of you any semblance of faith. Cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the pleasures of this world. Of course, as we continue, we're going to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll talk about Moses. Remember Moses? In Hebrews 11:24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of reward. He looked beyond this life. Listen, you think anybody was tempted? How about Moses? Hey, Moses, you realize the position you're in? You, know, you, you need to you know, think about this. If you'll just stick with the Pharaoh family, you might be the next one. You, you could be the next. Hey, you could deliver God's people by being king. Ah, think about it, Moses. You're known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. All this could be yours. You can just, you can just see the devil trying to tempt him. But what does he do? It says, no, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And why would he choose to suffer affliction with the people of God? You've got to be kidding me. The slaves? Come on, Moses. You're part of the aristocracy. You are upper class. Don't, don't be so bourgeois in your thinking. Moses, please. And Moses said, no. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin or the pleasures in Egypt for a season. And what did he esteem? The reproach of Christ? He thought of that as great wealth. The reproach of Christ, greater riches than all the treasures in Egypt. And Egypt was where it was at, folks. It was the world power of the time. But the reproach of being with God's people was more important to Moses than all the wealth that Egypt could offer. For he had respect unto the recompense of reward. He looked at the payday. He looked at the payday. He looked at the end, and he knew that Egypt was only for this life. But God's people, Christ, that was eternal. Back to Hebrews 10. If we apostatize after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But what is there? And this is the warning. Be warned. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. There is an expectation of judgment for those who apostatize, for those who throw out the faith, who turn from the truth and reject it deliberately. There is a guarantee, an expectation of future judgment. It's interesting, those who turn away from the gospel, those who refuse to believe the gospel, those who reject the truth after having received it, guess what they also reject? They all reject the notion, or we call it the fact, of eternal judgment. Think about it. If you're going to reject the gospel, you had better reject the notion of hell. Hearing about 
Um, Robert Louis Stevenson, guy who wrote, what, Treasure Island? Kidnapped. Grew up in a, a home, some devout parents, Presbyterians. Went to Edinburgh for college and came back, told us, sat down with his father, says, Dad, I just want you to know I decided I don't believe anything that I used to believe. Everything I was brought up, I reject. And I grieved his parents, but he turned, rejected it. Mark Twain, similar story. Atheists who rejected the truth. And you read what their comments are about eternal judgment. Christianity being the worst religion in the world. Inventing sins and trying to make the most trivial enjoyments of life evil. And mocking eternal judgment. Listen, if you reject the truth, you're going to reject the fact of judgment. And you think about it, if you believe there was judgment to come, if you really believe that, what would you do? You'd run to Christ immediately as fast as you could. But here, if we fall away, there is an expectation of judgment. Terrifying expectation of judgment for those who apostatize, throw off the truth. And then he gives the, the illustration. In verse 28, he says, let me remind you. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of course, we looked at this last week back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And there in the law, even if it was a family member that went after other gods, and said, hey, let's go serve other gods. Yeah, maybe, there, maybe there's some truth to Jehovah, but you know, maybe there's some truth to Baal too, and, 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 and maybe Molech and uh, some of these other gods. Maybe we just need to kind of look around and, and experiment with these others because, you know, how can truth just be so narrow? And he that despised Moses' law, what happened? He that apostatized then, who rejected God's authority and refused repentance, what happened? He died. It was death. That sounds extreme. It was physical death. Died without mercy under two or three witnesses. But if we think that's bad, look what he says in verse 29. And here's the description of the apostate of how much sorer or worse punishment. And of course, it is worse punishment. It's not just physical death, it's eternal death, eternal separation from God. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. There's one description. And the second, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and thirdly hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration Back in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus gave a parable of a householder, a man who owned a vineyard, his master. And what did he do? Well, verse 33, he says, here, Jesus said, here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to a husbandman and went into a far country. 
And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to receive the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. He sent his servants to the husband they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. And then Jesus asked this question. Might I say it's the same question over here of how much sore punishment suppose ye? He says this in Matthew Chapter 21 and verse 40, When the Lord therefore of that vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Now stop for a minute. Jesus is speaking to the multitudes. He gives this parable. The people are eagerly listening. They love a good story. We all love good stories. And you can just see them. They're they're listening to the story. Oh, oh, those are bad guys. They killed him? He sent more? And they did the same? Oh, He sends his son. They killed him too? (gasps) And then Jesus asked them the question, When the Lord therefore the vineyard comes himself, what is he going to do to those husbandmen? And they said unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. (sighs) And you you could just see him. He's going to miserably destroy them. He's not just going to kill them. He's going to rip them from limb to limb, tear them to pieces in the most mean way he can. Well, isn't it interesting that in Hebrews 10 and verse 29, we've just said that he that despised Moses' law is going to die without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment shall he be thought worthy who has done What? The very thing that Jesus was describing was done to the Son of God by the Jews and by anyone who apostatizes. What do they do? They are treading underfoot the Son of God, the ultimate disgrace. And they have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, saying the blood of Jesus Christ, yeah, he shed it, but it was no different than any other man's blood. It wasn't holy. It was just common, just like anybody else. No big deal. And he says, and have done despot or insulted the Holy Spirit. How much sore punishment will these be worthy? Well, folks, it's eternal punishment. These are not saved people. In 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 21, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, listen to his, Peter's description of those false teachers, those who came in acting like believers, knowing the truth, but actually having rejected it. He says of them, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through lusts of the flesh and through much wantonness those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, from of, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same 
is he brought in bondage. Verse 20 says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. And he's talking about apostasy. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Better to not have known. Because with knowledge, there is even greater accountability. And then he finishes the chapter saying, but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is what? Returned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. And the reason for that is a pig goes back to the mud and a dog returns and eats its own vomit because it's a pig, because it's a dog. And the only way to keep those two animals from doing those two things is you have to change them. You have to change their nature. And he says here, these people have had no nature change. They are still dogs and pigs. They are going back to their vomit. They are going back to the mud because their nature was never changed. Listen, the Christian is a new creation. He is one whose nature has been made new. We don't go back to our vomit. We don't go wallow in the mire. It doesn't mean we never sin, but we do not sin willfully and apostatize and turn our backs from the truth because the faith that saves is the faith from the Holy Spirit and it is one that lasts to the end. There's a warning. We've seen these warnings here in Hebrews. We go back to chapter 2. What did he say there? Hebrews 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And that word means to drift away. It's not even active throwing away. It's just letting it go by and not doing anything about it. It's a warning. He says, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and there he is referring to the law, according to Galatians 3.19, the law was ministered in the hands of angels. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? There is no escape. If you neglect salvation, if you turn from the truth... Let's go back to Hebrews. Turn ahead to Hebrews 11. I know I kind of hate to go forward, but I've got to look ahead. I want you to see something here. These people who apostatize. And this is not just being overtaken in a trespass, as we talked about in Galatians 6.1 last week. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault... You which are spiritual, restore such a one in spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted. Looking for restoration. Believers, certainly we are going to trip up. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to sin. But there's restoration. Not so with the person who apostatizes. In Hebrews 11, he talks about these great 
these heroes of faith, these people who, have, who trusted God, who looked beyond to see the future, who, as Abraham, looked for a city not made with hands. And he says in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And then note verse 15. It says, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. That is a very interesting verse. The next verse says, But no, they desire a better country. Verse 15 And truly, if they, these people who died in faith, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, if they still had the desire for that, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Does that sound like anything to you? That literally jumped off the page and reminded me of the children of Israel who had left Egypt. And then what did they do as they wandered? Oh, you brought us out here to kill us. We wish we could what? Go back to Egypt. Apostate Israelites wanting to go back. They were what? As this describes, they were mindful of the country from whence they had, came, they had come out. I didn't even believe in the promised land. We never seen anything promised. We haven't seen anything flowing with milk and honey. We just see hot sand and no water. Wish we could go back to Egypt. Could enjoy the leeches and the garlics. I mean, the leeks and the garlics, you know. Yeah, we had good food back then. Weren't you a slave? Well, well, at least we knew where our next meal was coming from. Yeah, yeah. And this manna stuff we're eating out here. Get sick of that. Ugh. Wow. That, that's what he's talking about. Apostasy. Apostasy. And then finally, here in Hebrews chapter 10, the warning is punctuated in verses 30 and 31 where he says, you know this, for we know him. We know him. You know. You know God. For we know him that hath said, vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense. I will settle the score. I will repay. I will pay back. Vengeance belongs to whom? God. And God is a what? He is a righteous judge. Oh, yes, he is. And he will repay. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember when David had numbered the people, had sinned? God said, I'll give you three choices. Three months of plague, 
Three months fleeing before your enemies. Three months, three months under enemies. Three months of famine that was, or three months here of a plague that I'll send. What did David said? Let me not fall into the hands of man. I'll fall into the hands of God. And what happened? Plague destroyed tens of thousands. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Of course, that quote being taken from back in Isaiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 33. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy, not Isaiah. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's the end of Moses' life. He's giving his final words to the children of Israel, and he says, you're going to mess up. I know what you're going to do. You're going to depart from the truth. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 and 36, He says, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people. And repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone, and there is none shut up or left. Great warning given. Great warning is given. The Lord shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, as we come to the end of this passage, let me remind you. This is a warning. This is a warning to those who have not entrusted themselves to the gospel. It's a warning to those who have heard and understand the facts. It's a warning to those who, having heard and understood the facts, agree, well, yeah, it's true. But if you do not place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you turn from the truth, and you deliberately reject it and throw it away, There is nothing for you but guaranteed judgment at the hand of Almighty God in whose face you have raised your fist. And so it behooves us to be warned. It behooves us to pray for our children, to teach them and to demonstrate to them what true faith looks like. Because faith produced by the Holy Spirit cannot and will not fail. Make sure that's the faith you have. Make sure of your salvation. That's the message. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this passage before us. And Lord, what a sober warning. Lord, we 
pray for each one who's under the sound of this message, Lord, that they would consider and be sure of their faith, be sure of their salvation. Lord, that our children growing up in Christian homes would not just give assent because that's all they know. Lord, that they would truly entrust themselves by faith. And Lord, we thank you that as Peter said, that he that hath these things shall never fall. There will be a glorious entrance into the presence of God into eternity. And Father, I do pray that each one here would know for sure that they are a child of God. Lord, we thank you so much for the the history and the stories that we read in Scripture of those whose faith did not falter because it was the true faith given by the Holy Spirit of God. And for this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.